perhaps my voice will be clear enough to speak. Seemed to have some difficulty there this morning after we got in the service, but it's very good to be here with you all and worshiping together. Um, one of my pastor friends had a status on WhatsApp yesterday, and it was a picture of, uh, what did he title it? He said, things that happen when you're supposed to be studying. And he had several pictures, and then the last one was a picture of his desk and him, his uh, view of the computer. You know, I messaged just a wee bit, and it actually resonated with me. This week we had a little issue that I discovered yesterday, a pinhole in a hot water line that put water under our basement flooring in the bathroom. And so part of my yesterday was being a plumber when I didn't want to be a plumber. And uh, you know, the mess still needs to be finished up as far as cleaning it up. But that is the way it seems to go sometimes. There are plenty of things that need attention and distraction when God wants us to come to Him and to be before Him. I find that in daily life. We can let the daily things crowd us out. It's not that they should be ignored or undone, but they should not replace our time with God. And so we're doing that this morning. Bless you all for being here. I'm sure you have other things that you could do, and yet you choose to be here. Uh, bless you. That is what we ought to do. In my little excursion in under the it's not really a closet, but it's kind of a tucked away place where our water heater is, where I found the water leak. As I was removing some things, one of the things I found there was a little red backpack that I've probably not used in 30 years or more, maybe 40, I'm not sure. I can hardly get it on, it's a child's backpack. It's from my mom. And she got that for me in a time when backpacks weren't very prolific. And it would have, it, it's a real simple thing. It's actually dysfunctional in many ways. It's a, in many ways an antique relic. It's not something that you would just choose to grab and go. It's not comfortable. But every time I see that, I remem remember what mom's intent would have been and why she got that for me. And it's uh, probably one of the few, maybe the only material possession that I have that my mother would have given. She is now in her lower 90s and her brain function is subpar. So she doesn't call me as often as she used to. But one of the things I thought about as I was thinking about that backpack is, you know, I'll bet that little backpack, if you would take a piece of paper and you would write all of my mom's prayers on there for me, it wouldn't surprise me if the backpack was full. And it's been one of the things that is a treasure for me that my mother would spend as much time praying for me as she did. And it was that's a that will always be a highlight memory of mom uh, even though I lived 
900 miles away most of my life. She knew just enough of what was happening in my life to have very relevant prayers. So my encouragement to you ladies this morning, whether you're a mom or a grandmother or a lady, young girl, whatever you are, maybe you're not a mother, you have the opportunity to pray and to influence the people around you. And it's a role that any lady can do. And I bless you all in that. This is not particularly a Mother's Day sermon, but it is one that has been on my mind for quite some time, stemming from a very familiar verse in Micah 6. And while verse 8 is fairly common and easily quoted, I think that maybe some of the backstory is not. And I think maybe sometimes we don't pause to think about verse 8 in the depth to which it maybe deserves. So this morning I'd like for us to look at what God requires from Micah 6. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses. It'll be a little bit of history and a little bit of application. So I trust once again that the Lord will apply things that are maybe even unsaid this morning. And I'd like for you all to read with me from the words on the screen. This is the first eight verses. So all together, beginning with verse 1. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, from Micaiah's grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oils? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Thank you all for reading. Those are God's words through the prophet Isaiah in a very specific time and place. And yet there are things that apply to us. Uh, what? This would have been, it's, we're nearing 3,000 years, 2,500 years after these words were penned. Something It would have been closer to 2,500, yes. Uh, just prior to them going into uh, the children of Israel being taken into bondage. I'd like for you all to think a with me a little bit and just consider the, uh, the backstory. I want to spend a little time because for me it's 
helpful in thinking through God's message and what he's saying. Think about uh, these first verses. I'm going to back up here just so you see it on the screen and walk through a couple of things as we talk about the different pieces. Actually, I want to do want to show you this first. Here's the three sections in brief I want to cover. I don't have an extensive outline, but essentially God is contending with Israel in the first verses, and then he goes to a section where there's a history of faithfulness. God says, this is what I did, and then we end up with, what does God require? How do we approach this righteous God? So first of all, in God contending with Israel, I want to bounce back to these verses. You see he brings in, the Lord is talking, and he's saying, plead your case before the mountains, let the hills hear your voice. He's saying, make this open. I think part of the reason of him pulling that in, uh, verse 2, he adds, the strong foundations of the earth. It's like the people of Israel aren't listening. They have blatantly disobeyed the Lord. And God's coming and saying, before all these hills, these places that have observed your wickedness, if there's something you have against me, come and say what it is. That's verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Excuse me. He's asking them, what did I do wrong? I'm your God. Is there anything you have to say back to me. If you think about the covenants that God made with the children of Israel, I I thought about going through and uh, listing some of those. I didn't for sake of time, Uh, but you will know, you can think of what some of those are. Some of them were unconditional. God was just going to do this. Many of them, though, were, they'd had conditions. They were conditional. If you do this, I will do this. It was an agreement that God had with them. And I think it's in that vein that God is asking this. What did I do to break my covenant with you? And the answer is God never did. God always was faithful. It was the children of Israel who broke their side of the covenant. Their sin was blatant. If you would go back to Micah 4 and 5, some Amazing verses there of God promising to redeem the current situation. We're nearing the end of the kingdom of Israel before the captivity, and Micah very plainly tells them in chapters 4 and 5, he says, just like a woman is going to give birth and it's just going to happen, just like you plant seeds, you have crops, and it's ripe for for harvest, that harvest is going to happen in the normal flow of things. He said, in the same way, you are going to Babylon. But he says, go there and bear fruit, and when God accomplishes his purposes, he's going to bring you back. So even this message of judgment, and here's what God's going to do, it's going to happen, but on those heels, it's, but he's going to bring you back. And so now he comes here, and he's having a little further recitation of this contention with Israel, what have I done to you? And the answer is that God did nothing to weary them. There was nothing for which they could testify against him. It's really a case of the king coming to his subjects and saying, when his subjects have pledged allegiance elsewhere, and saying, 
what did I do wrong? What's your case against me? And they have nothing to say. It is they who are obviously in the wrong. The king's demands here are very reasonable. The next section here is that history proves God's faithfulness. And you will see this in verses uh, verses 4 through 4 and 5 is where this is recounted. And I'd like to just pause and think through the way God was faithful to Israel. There is no cause for them to come back and accuse him of breaking a covenant. It didn't happen. They broke theirs with him. He says, I brought you out of Egypt. And that's kind of a, a, the beginning statement of verse 4. And now he explains things that happened in that path. What happened is I brought you out of Egypt. Well, one is I redeemed you from bondage. It's almost like they didn't have a choice. It's probably not 100% true, but God was determined. He had foreordained. He was going to bring them out of Egypt. They went to Egypt out of necessity when there was a famine. God had foretold that. He said, you'll be there 400 years. Ended up being a little bit longer than that. But he said, I'll bring you out, and I'll bring you to a good land uh, where you can serve me there. And one of the things that strikes me in that story is that uh, I think it was Ray Vanderlaan that said it was much easier for God to bring the children out of Egypt than it was for him to get Egypt out of the children of Israel. And the, we find that they were content even in their slavery. How often did they refer to, if only we could have just stayed as slaves instead of being in this wilderness. You know, they, they kept looking back to the good food that they had there. And they were comfortable in their misery, unfortunately. But God redeemed them out of Israel. He brought them out just as he had promised Abraham. And then he says, I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam before you. This is kind of an interesting one. So think about the topic is, I brought you out of Egypt. And now here are some important things that happened. It's not too hard for us to imagine why Moses is important. He was a great prophet. He was, uh, if you go to, I think it's Numbers 31. Uh, we'll get to that passage in just a wee bit. But where Aaron and Miriam are speaking against Moses. And God addresses them in front of the tabernacle. And he says, Moses is not just like somebody that... Uh, he occasionally hears from me. I speak with him face to face as with a man. And God is saying there's something special about Moses in that, in that instance. And that, that is who Moses was. He was a great prophet. That same passage says that Moses was the meekest man who lived. And I, I'm fascinated by the, the... If you imagine what it took to lead that group of people to face your adopted family in the political powers of Egypt at the highest levels and to do that knowing that it may cost you your life and then to spend 40 years leading this rebellious people around in the wilderness. Moses was an amazing person, I believe. And he lists Aaron. One of the places in the Old Testament, 
uh, Aaron is described as being Moses' prophet. It's like he was his assistant. When Moses complained to God at the burning bush that he couldn't speak, God said, well, then I'll give you Aaron and he can speak for you. And so Aaron became a spokesperson for Moses. And he became the father of the priestly line. He was the first priest of Israel. And then Miriam. That's interesting to me that she's listed here. We have three siblings. Apparently, she played a fairly prominent role. Uh, we know at the crossing of the Red Sea, it's like she was the leader of the, the music, uh, that song that they sang on the other side of the Red Sea. That was her role. When Moses and Aaron complained, I mean, when she and Aaron complained against Moses, uh, they were, one of their things was, hasn't God spoken to us as well? And there's another place historical, I'm not sure that I, I did not find it in Scripture, but commonly accepted in the Jewish world that Miriam was a prophetess who ranked in her own right there with, along in function with Aaron and Moses. So I don't know what all her roles were, but she is highlighted here in this recount here in, in Micah's prophecy. I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam before you. These were the people leading them and giving them direction. And then we come to another significant piece. Remember Balak and Balaam. You'll remember that story. <clears throat> One of the things that maturing in uh, historical, geographical, biblical knowledge does is it gives word pictures. So I don't know where you all are at in, in your minds. Just, uh, never mind, I won't ask you to raise your hand. I hope you have a mental image of what the land of Israel looks like, just in general. Mediterranean Sea on the left, little lake at the top, Sea of Galilee, skinny wiggly river coming down Jordan River, to the lowest point on earth, the Dead Sea, a big rectangular thing. That area is where these stories happen. I'm going to show you a couple maps. I love maps. Uh, maybe that's why I have mental images of this, because I, I like those visuals. I see what they are. But these stories happen. Why is Balaam, Balaam and Balak, why is that story important here? It's because it was a significant event right before they crossed the Jordan. It was like one of the last things that happened before they crossed into the Promised Land, and it was a major stumbling block. Look at this recounting in Deuteronomy. In the giving of the law, this was given. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever because, here's two reasons, they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. So these people, they were very unwelcoming, and as I'm going to show you on a map, uh, they had to go around the land of Moab. These were descendants of Lot. These are distant relatives. So, but they had parted ways, and apparently they never came back. Even when Abraham 
came and rescued Lot. That's the last interaction that we, we hear of those two family groups. Here's the remainder of it. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the, cur the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord loves you. And yet there was this judgment pronounced on them. Uh, if I'll pause there. Here's the map. We're going to zoom in. But one of the things you'll find interesting, can you in the back half see that map? Some of you can. Uh, nope, my pointer is not pointing. Okay. The red loop right here, this is the failed invasion two years after leaving Egypt. They came up from Egypt, which is over below the Mediterranean Sea. They end up coming here. They send the spies in and they say, oops, it's a good land, but the giants are too big, we can't do it. And then after they're told, well, you spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness, they're like, oh, well, we'll go in. So they go in and they get defeated and they spend the next 38 years wandering around down in this area. The dotted lines on the right, Edom, what family group was Edom? Anyone remember? Esau. It's another connected family group here. So we got Esau and the Moabites, Lot. So we got Esau and Lot. They actually had to go around them. Moab refused them passage. So they went way around, and you can't see it on the map here. Actually, right above the dotted line to the right of the Dead Sea, there's a canyon that runs out. That's the Arnon River, and that's the border there between Moab and uh, Israel. So I'm going to zoom in here a little bit. You can see that canyon. Uh, they're coming out from the left, the Dead Sea. Somewhere in there is where that boundary was. So the children of Israel then went up and camped. And if you see where Mount Nebo is, that's where God showed Moses the promised land as he looked over into Canaan. So that's the, that's the story of where Balaam, the story of Balak and Balaam happened. What's fascinating to me is that this is listed as a significant thing. Why? Because right there between, it would be in the, the area above the canyon, up in there, there was some plains area. That's where the children of Israel camped in their final encampment before going over the Jordan. If you go to Numbers, and let's see, it would be, the story is in Numbers 24, 25 and following. Uh, in the New King James, it calls it the Acacia Grove. The King James and many other translations have it. Uh, Shittim is the name of that area, that town. And so they, they're in that area. Chapter 25, Israel remained in Acacia Grove and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab and they were judged for that. So this is just right before they go in the promised land. God's saying, I'm faithful. I'm providing all this. I gave you Moses, Aaron, Miriam. And now we're almost ready to get into the promised land. And here comes Balaam. You know how Balaam's connected to Numbers 25? It doesn't say it in the story, but at the end of Balak and Balaam's 
interaction, Balaam says this, I will advise you, and then it doesn't say what the advice is. Numbers 31 tells us what it was. And Balaam basically told Balak, don't fight against them, just make your women available to their men. And so what happened is the children of Israel began marrying these heathen women. They began worshiping heathen gods and they were pulled away from Jehovah God and there was a time of judgment right before their entry into the promised land. So even that didn't stop God from accomplishing his purposes. Remember Balak and Balaam. Remember that incident at Peor. And then he lists this, from Acacia Grove to Gilgal. Why does he list that? Show you another map. This is roughly the trek, those uh, reddish lines are roughly, uh, roughly the trek of the Israelite conquest. If we zoom in here on another map, you'll see the two highlighted towns. you notice where they are. What happened in this phrase is that is them crossing over the Jordan River. He's saying, I brought you out of Egypt, redeemed you from bondage, gave you leaders, I provided for you, even in the matter of Balaam, I did not let his curse or Balak's desired curse, I turned it to a blessing. Remember how upset Balaam was with, Balak was with that? I paid you to curse these people, now you're blessing them. And guess what? God still brought them across the Jordan River. That's the Acacia Grove to, to Gilgal. They're close to Jericho is where Gilgal was located, and God did what he had said he would do. That you may know God's righteousness. He's saying, what do you have against me? How have I wearied you? What can you testify against me? Here's history. That you may know my righteousness. And there was nothing to say. It's like it's a rhetorical question. There is, there is no answer that God didn't do anything wrong. And so then, it brings us to the question of how do we respond to God? The children of Israel are obviously wrong. God is obviously right. How can they approach him? And here he begins another series of questions, uh, looking in verses 6 and 7. How shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? And he lists these things. Oh, what happened here? Okay. I missed the slide I thought in here. You'll have to just listen to it, I guess. It's referencing the Old Testament ceremonial law. They'd already been practicing it for quite a number of years. What shall I do? Shall I come with thousands of... No, in verse 6. Shall I bring him burnt offerings with calves of a year old? That was a specified thing. One of the things I'd like for you to note is the progression. They're, they're going through things that they had done in the law. First, it's calves of a year old. Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Now we're switching to sheep. 
and lots of them, or with ten thousands of rivers of oil. Mike is increasing this. It's like he's turning up the dial of what does it take to please God? That apparently the answer is no because he keeps going. Look at the next one that he says. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? And now he goes outside of what was acceptable sacrifice. Now he goes to what the heathen people did. They sacrificed their children. He's saying, would God, would that make me acceptable before God, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Obviously the answer is no. One little aside, when you read through the story, and this is in uh, Numbers 3. You know why the book of Numbers is called Numbers? Anyone know how it starts off? It's the It's what? It's the census of, it's that too, but it's the census of the people of Israel. God commanded it for a very specific purpose. And you go through chapters 1 through 3, by the time you get to chapter 3, God says, okay, we've got, I think the number, don't hold me to this exactly, I think it was 22,000 firstborn from 11 tribes. You know what? All the firstborn of animals, they get sacrificed. People, we don't sacrifice people. But the 12th tribe, the Levites, they're all mine. They are payment because the other 11 tribes don't have to sacrifice their firstborn. And in Numbers 3, you'll find that there were 273 more firstborn men than there were Levites. And so God said, okay, on that portion, there has to be a redemption payment. The firstborn had already been redeemed, and Micah's asking here, Shall I sacrifice them? The dial keeps going up. No. The answer is no. And I don't think that Micah was saying, don't do the ceremonial law. That's not the point. But he's drilling down to verse 8, and he's saying, here's what God really wants. You all are wrong. God is right. He kept his end of the deal. You should have done the ceremonial law, but it's more than that. And we get the common verse. He showed you, oh man, what is good. It's like Israelites, you should know this. God's already showed you this. You should know what's required of you. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. And I'd like for us to wrap up with just thinking a little bit about that. When you look at your history, has God ever showed himself unfaithful? There have been times that he, it may feel like it. We have unanswered prayer. We have situations. I didn't ask for that. I don't want that. That's hard. But God is faithful. He has never wavered. He, just because I don't understand it or it doesn't look like it, doesn't mean that he is unfaithful. He is faithful. If that is true, and it is, how should I respond? And here's where I think it not only applies to Micah and the children of Israel, it applies to us. We are to do justly. 
Some people understand that phrase, to render all their due, to do everything that ought to be done. The focus is on being or on doing right. It's the focus is on truth. It's on righteousness. Render to God all that is due Him. Scripture tells us how to live. We are blessed to live in a time and place where we have, we have the Bible. We have it in written form. I carry, I don't know how many Scripture versions on an app on my, in my pocket. We have total access to, to this. It's amazing. Render to God all that's due Him. The scripture becomes our guiding light and we live for him. It's, we're all in. We render all our due, do justly. We render to others all that is due to them. Think about this, do justly. What does that look like to other people? I'm kind, it's love, respect, kindness, hospitality, understanding, care. It's to the people around us, our family, our church family, our neighbors, broader society, even our government than under which we live. There are all things in those areas. Render what's due to others around us. That's doing justly. And then I'm going to add another one. Even to yourself, to ourselves, we should render what is due. And I think here we're now beginning to talk about in my Attitude, what happens when nobody else is around, what I think about, what truly motivates me, what makes me tick, all of that stuff inside. Render what is due in that area. Do justly. It's not just external. It is focused on doing right. It is external, but it impacts the heart as well. It's a personal growth and mission. It's an extension of rendering to God. And then we have the thing of loving mercy. I'm fascinated by this. God boiling all this down. And I know in the, in the uh, I don't want to oversimplify it because there is, we've got scripture, there's many things that can be built out, but God is using this little capsule and he's saying here's three things they're really important. And the first one is doing right. And then he says, love mercy. I was thinking about that and thinking about how immaturity is often reflected in imbalance. If you look at children and their need for training, uh, it's pretty easy to see the lack of balance there. And then you have these children grow up and we get big bodies and sometimes we're still out of balance because we're not mature yet in that area. Uh, spiritually, maybe even socially, the way we think. In this case, we need that balance of doing right and loving mercy. God's that way. His mercies are new every morning. He's a holy God. No sin can stand before him. Yet he has these everlasting mercies that just keep going and they're always available. We sang His mercy is more. That's God. And He's saying that's what we ought to be. Do right. Live right. Focus on right. But don't forget, you need to have mercy as well. Mercy and truth are frequently paired in Scripture. 
The love for truth must always be accompanied by grace. We must mature and get rid of the imbalances that we so easily have. All mercy doesn't work. All truth doesn't work. They both need to be there in pair. And then the third one, walk humbly with God. I thought about just focusing on each one of those five words. I'll let you do that rather than me dragging it out, but it's a walk. It's in humility. It's with, I missed the word here. With is the third word. It's alongside your personal God. Walk humbly with your God. So focus on Him and His ways. I'm cooperating with God. I'm alongside Him. He's not dragging me. And I am not... running ahead of him. I'm with him. I'm walking with him. My walk highlights him, not me. Perhaps we could consider what do our lives highlight? What does my self-presentation highlight? It's awfully easy to see other people. Too often we don't have full-length mirrors to see ourselves very well in character. But I think this is begging that question. How do I present to others? My posture should be one of people know I'm walking humbly with God. That doesn't mean I'm tooting my own horn. It just means it's apparent. It's obvious that that's what's happening. That is the guiding force in my life. If I'm truly humble, I'm going to recognize my great need before the Lord. I can't do enough to be acceptable before Him. I have to come through Jesus. Some of you know that I encountered a billboard caller this week who was instructing me in the ways of salvation and how I should talk about that. It was a fairly intense conversation. Um, he did have some good points, things I can learn. It's, that part is good. It is only through Christ, only through Christ that I can walk humbly with him. You know, everything that I have been given, everything that you have been given, everything you have has been given to you one way or another. Even the stuff that you work hard at, you know what? God gave you life and energy to do that stuff and the brain power to do it. Just at the bottom of it, you can't really take credit for a thing. It's all a gift at some level. So what does God require of his followers? Do I live right? 
too justly. Do I love mercy? I'm told to love it. And I'm told to walk humbly with God. Do I do that? My prayer is that as we come, as we go through life, that these things can be on our mind. Those are three simple phrases. Actually, I don't know how many of you pay attention to things like WhatsApp signatures. Some of them are humorous, and I'm fine with them. That's okay. But at the time, a number of years ago, I don't know how many years ago, when I first got a WhatsApp account, these three phrases were ringing in my mind. It's like, okay, that'd make a nice signature. And I've left them there. Maybe I'll change them sometime. But that is what I want to be the core of my life. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Let's do that together.